Hello, money makers and money savers. Welcome to the interview series, The Business of Business. I'm your host, Dustin Dubé, and this is Finance Fundamentals, the show where we learn how to stop working so hard for our money and learn how to make it work harder for you. This podcast is entirely based on my experiences and thoughts. I am not a financial advisor, and the thoughts and expressions you hear on this show are my own and are not reflective of my employers, past or present, nor my guests. I am not liable for investments that you make or strategies that you implement upon listening to my show. Now, back to the show. Hey friends, welcome back to Finance Fundamentals. This is the Business of Business, episode two of the interview series, where I interview unique industry experts and business owners to motivate, educate, and help you to chase your craft. Today I've got a really cool and young guest, his name is Mark Ezzi, and Mark is a real estate professional, real estate investor. He started this during his sophomore year of college at Boston University, he's been growing his portfolio ever since, entered into the real estate world as a part-time gig, not necessarily knowing where this would lead him, transitioned this into a full-time job. That is the American dream, if I've ever heard of it. Mark worked at Ernst Young as a real estate consultant, and then at the Carlisle Group as a real estate analyst. But as of Q1 2021, just recently, Mark is a full-time worker in the industry, Ezzy Property Group is his business, which owns and manages 30-plus units in the city of Boston. The aggregate portfolio is over $12 million. The guy's in his mid-20s. This is Mark's passion, and he loves talking about it and helping others get educated and started in the industry and using his knowledge to do so. Mark and I actually go back a ways. Mark was an intern on my team way back in 2016, probably. And so uh, I really wanted to have him on the show to shed light on his story, share his tips, and I hope you really enjoy it. Let's get to it. This is Finance Fundamentals. Hello, everyone. Today I have with me Mark. Mark is actually a former colleague of mine and a real estate mogul in Boston, Massachusetts. I I hear him laughing in the background. (laughs) He actually is a mogul. and, And whether he likes to admit it or not, he's doing something that a lot of us aspire to do. So Mark, happy to have you here with me. Really do appreciate it. And can you just start off, give me a little bit of a background of who you are, where you're coming from and and how you got into the industry? Yeah. So anytime. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Dustin. I really appreciate it. And uh, appreciate the your, your opinion. <laughs> so a little bit about me, I, I kind of entered the real estate world kind of accidentally when I was in college. Um, I was really looking for something to make some side income with that didn't require too much of a time commitment away from my studies. And it was between becoming an Uber driver and getting my real estate license. <laughs> so I did become an Uber driver. I signed up. I never made a trip. And I did get my real estate license, but I ended up committing more to that. (laughs) And so I started off by working as a broker in the city of Boston and primarily in rental. I was at Boston University, which is a a school where most students move off campus after their first year. And so the big talk at parties and like in classes, you see students in front of you on Zillow and the big talk at parties is like, where are you living next year? And so it was a, it was like a kind of an easy access to a big rental pool. And I took that and I started applying for jobs with brokers and knowing that I was a student and had access to one of Boston's strongest rental markets, a lot of them were willing to hire me. And so I got on board with, with one of Boston's biggest brokers and I got access to a ton of listings and was able to match 
my peers with apartments and earn commissions. And through that, I'm just being like a young, interested, curious individual studying business in the business school. I would see how these landlords were treating, treating the field, especially the bigger ones that like had offices and all the maintenance teams and everything like that. And all these processes, and I became really interested. And so I would ask them questions and being a, being a young person that was bringing them a lot of business, they were willing to talk to me. And they gave me a lot of advice and stuff like that. And it was stuff that really kind of inspired me to, to try it. And so I took all the commissions pretty much that I had made that year. And that summer went to my hometown, which is like 45 minutes north of Boston, and purchased a condo for, I think at the time it was like $72,000 was the purchase price. Turned out to be a renovation project, which I, I was forced to learn how to do and took it from there. I really liked it. And I realized that this is actually a really cool business. I mean, it was something that I was really interested in and I wanted to keep doing it. And so from there, I just bought more, more condos as I saw fit. And I used different methods to finance and different strategies, which I can get into to, to be able to put together the funds to make other acquisitions. And I grew a portfolio of condos. And then I, over the past year, I had accumulated to about nine properties and I sold all of those. And I did a 1031 exchange, which is another thing that I could talk about if we're, if we're interested later on in the show, into acquiring more and more properties, this time in the city of Boston. So now most of my properties are in Boston zip codes. Uh, actually, all of my properties are in Boston zip codes. And the portfolio to this day has grown to 28 units, a little over $10 million of, net of total value. Um, obviously, there's there's some financing with that, but the the portfolio itself is probably worth anywhere between ten and eleven million today. And we're I'm always making new acquisitions, selling assets, and it's just kind of treating it all like a full time business right now. Up until about December, I was doing this as a side job because I was working my full time job first at Ernst and Young as a consultant, and then I went into the finance world at the Carlisle Group, and I was living in New York and doing out of state management. And then over the past year with the sales and the acquisitions of the new buildings, I really just realized that it was time to give this my all. And it was a good opportunity to, to focus on it full time. And, and here we are now. And that's, that's really exciting. So when we talk about your current path, what did you study in college first? And then once you got into the professional world, right? And, and we talked about how you were doing this passively. That's a pretty tough gig to manage in for anyone, especially early on in your career, and you were also doing it out of state. So talk a little bit about that and, and how you came to the decision to just put your all into this. Yeah. So funny enough, in college, I actually entered studying health science. I was planning on going to dental school <laughs> and took a big career pivot to the business school. And with kind of accompanying that with my job as a real estate agent, I just focused on real estate. I took a business school with the concentration in real estate and finance. And then from there, I joined my first job was in real estate consulting, and then it was in real estate finance. So I, I basically got my education in real estate and my, my corporate uh, experiences in more so corporate real estate. So with the big fish. <laughs> so managing out of state and doing it while working a job, to be honest, was not easy. Um, I spent a lot of time, like a lot of time outside of my job, committing to things that I otherwise would not have done. For example, I was in New York, right? My job was in New York. So like there would be weekends where Friday, I have plans to go out in New York and then Friday night I'm on a train to Boston because I got something, something came up. And at the time I was too small to have like a full-time maintenance, like dedicated crew. So really anything that came up, I had to outsource last minute and it became like a stress every time. 
So it was definitely not easy. Mm. It was a challenge that needed to be overcome. And a lot of it was just the desire to put in the work, the passion, and just like the desire to grow it. Now, the ability to actually manage it was honestly, I could probably say is because it was mostly condos was the portfolio. So when you own condos, really things don't like when things go wrong, there's not much that's your responsibility because you really only own the inside of your walls and like all kinds of plumbing and electric and anything like that requires significant or what I should call emergency service is usually done by the condo association. And so that's why I would recommend anyone starting off in real estate. That's like a great asset to own because it's really easy management. You kind of get a small taste of what it's like to actually own property, manage tenants and all that without really the big headaches of property ownership, to be honest. And once I started transitioning the portfolio to larger, you know, three to six unit buildings where you own the land and everything like associated with it, um, you're responsible for everything. So like you get you get a leak where this from the second floor bathroom, like causing the first floor ceiling to collapse. And the tenants calling you freaking out like you got to handle that. You have to have an emergency response crew and that growing that growing to what it is today is what really forced me to give this my full-time dedication. Now, an alternative solution could have been to hire a property manager who's going to take X percent of your revenue and handles everything. But for me, it was more of also an interest that I wanted to keep doing it. And I also wanted to grow it. And my in order to do so, I had to focus on maximizing my cash flow from the properties. And I realized that a property manager was going to take away from that, both in terms of financially and in terms of me wanting to do the work. And so I decided to do it myself and, and shifted towards giving it commitment. The short answer is really that having condos in the beginning, which were are relatively easy properties to own, allowed me to be able to like kind of give my full time attention to demanding corporate jobs, demanding college curriculum and be out of state and, and, and doing that successfully, I would say. Yeah, that makes sense. And actually, Mark, you forgot something really important. Uh, before you started at Ernst & Young, you did an internship and and you were working underneath somebody that really uh, motivated you. Would you like to give them a shout out? <laughs> Dustin. <laughs> He's like, what are you doing here? Go do real estate. <laughs> uh, we, we, we can talk about that another time. <laughs> um, so, so there's every shout out. Yeah. <laughs> so you're 25, correct, Mark? Yeah, I'll be 26 in two weeks. Oh, hey, happy birthday. Thanks. All right. So we've, we've moved into this full time. You've left the corporate world. You're now giving this your all. Let's talk about the number of apartments you own. Let's talk about the number of tenants that you have. I, I think it would be really interesting to think about the cash flow that you have coming in, as well as the, the monthly payments that you have to be making. And, and how did you go about growing the portfolio and learn to manage this from one property up, upwards of, of what's your current portfolio? It's 28 units to be 31 at the end of the month. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So let's, let's talk through that. <laughs> so a lot of, a lot of, and this, I honestly learned, I could like give kudos to my time in demanding corporate jobs where you're kind of just given a task and told to figure it out. I could carry that over to this. It's kind of like continue to do what you know how to do. And as problems that you're not familiar with present themselves, figure out a way to solve them. And I read this book. It was called Traction. And basically, one thing I got out of it is that like really running a business is just, is just a matter of solving a lot of problems. Everything can be broken down into a problem. And as your business grows, your problems grow and they become more and more problems. And you just become a better problem solver 
or you hire people that know how to solve certain problems better than you. For example, a big problem in re- owning real estate is maintenance, right? I never was a handy person. I could not mount the TV mount to the wall, but I was able to pull in people that know how to do that stuff and are willing to do it. And they're on my side now. So it allows me to not have to worry about things. Like when I get a call from a tenant now, a year ago, it used to be one of my biggest stress factors. Now it's just another day at work. And And it allows me to focus on what I know how to do and what I like to do, which is acquire and source more deals. Managing it, to be honest, in the beginning was tough. So in the beginning, you don't really have much scale. So you can't afford you can't afford resources that could be dedicated to you. It just wouldn't make sense cash flow wise. So at the in the early stages, what I did was I I basically spoke with other small investors in the area and said, hey, like, let's put together our properties and let's be able to use this in order to like attract resources to help us out. So like, for example, like if I need an electrician, I can call the electrician and rather than say, oh, I just own this one building, like I need you for one time and I don't know what I'm going to call you again. I can call this guy and say, hey, like I have 20 apartments, like I need someone that I could rely on. And he's probably, and I mean, this is his work. So he obviously wants more work. And he would want me as an account that he could rely on for consistent work, like at least once a month type thing. And so that's how it was in the beginning. And now it's, I mean, now it's 28 apartments just on my own. And so, and so doing that, like having that scale allows me to have resources that A, I can afford to have basically dedicated and B, generate enough work to keep resources like around. And on top of it, I mean, I can't just say like, it's, it's a, a matter of just being able to afford people, being able to afford help and being able to have people like willing to help you. It's also a matter of working well with people. I mean, you can't just hire, like there's a lot of service providers in this industry. You can't just have anyone, right? Um, You need to really find people that you're compatible with, that know your style of work, you know their style of work, because that's what really eases a lot of like discomfort and stresses and allows you to really focus on what it is that you want to do. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. And I guess tr- transitioning from that. So you said you're moving up to 31 at the end of the month. What's your end goal? You know, how many do you personally want to be managing? You know, I never really um, put it into numbers. <laughs> um, it's for me, it's kind of like any good deal that comes my way. I will try, <laughs> I will try to make it work. However it is. And eventually the answer is going to be, you're going to run out of money. I have one partner who he's, he's invested in some deals, but it's, it's primarily myself. And so eventually you're going to, you're going to run out of funds to be able to do it organically. And so the, the solution to this and how I guess real estate funds become a thing is you start looping in investors, investors that start to believe that, you know, what you're doing, you are someone that can generate returns. They want to be invested in this space. They think maybe Boston's a good market. Maybe this property type is something they'd like to own. And they may not have time for it. Whether whatever their career is, it's probably if it's not real estate, they might be interested in investing with you. And so right now it's kind of like deciding whether or not the idea is to continue growing this organically as a portfolio or transition this more so to a fund or a company where you're kind of bringing in investors and you have deals coming in all the time, deals executing all the time. And that's, that's a whole different game. That becomes more of an asset management business as opposed to a property management business. And that's something that I'm still kind of like deciding on. So to say like a goal of a number of units where I want to be, to be honest with you, like I know it's something that I should have, but it's something that I don't even know myself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that, that that's fair. I think that this is, it's happened pretty quickly, right? You know, you, you haven't been out of school that long. So it's, it's definitely been a, a quick growth. So we, we talked about, 
the number of units, how much cash flow are you managing per month? You said about 3000 per unit. Is that yeah, right? It's about 3000 per unit and you're talking 28 units. So I guess you could, you could do that math. It's almost about $90,000 a month. Wow. Yeah. 25 years <laughs> old, <laughs> but, but to be fair, I know you and I had chatted before and, and you're really taking very minimal profits. You're trying to reinvest as much as possible. So, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't take any profits right now. Yeah. So for anyone thinking that this is a lavish lifestyle, it is, it, he's in the accumulation stage. So, you know, it does, it does take time to get into that lavish lifestyle. Okay. So I know that that you and I had chatted a little bit and you told me about a methodology that you learned about and you called it the Burr methodology. Can you dive into that? Because I, I thought that was super interesting and I think that it would give the listeners a lot of perspective. Yeah. So for people that are familiar with real estate, you may or may not know it. For people that aren't familiar with real estate, again, Sam, you may or may not know it. Um, the Burr method, basically what it stands for is buy, rehab, rent, refinance, repeat. And it's commonly, it's actually used in every part of the real estate world, whether you're buying a small condo for $70,000 or whether you're buying an office building in Midtown, New York. It's the same method that's used. And basically what happens is, is you purchase a property that you see has some value add potential, um, whether it's through increasing rents, decreasing operating costs, or making physical improvements to a property. You see some area where there's value add. Maybe you buy a two unit building and you can convert it into a three unit building. There's room for value add. And what you do is, is you buy that property. Usually it's at a discount to what you think its value is or what the market will approve its value is. And you purchase it. You then get into the rehab stage. The rehab stage is where you do that value add work, whether it's basically you turn over all the rent roll. So you increase the rents, you decrease costs whether it's you do actual rehab projects to the properties, which is like a construction project, a renovation project, an addition, et cetera. That's, that's the rehab. So that's basically the longest part of it, which could take, I mean, it depends how big the project is, which could take as little as two months to as long as a couple of years. I mean, depending again on the size of the project. And then the rent phase is basically where you get that property to perform at market or above market rents. And therefore your, your cash flow is really, really strong and allows you to basically increase the value of your property. The refinance stage is you will go to a lender, whether it's traditional, commercial, hard money, whatever it may be. And you'll say, hey, I have a property. It's worth this much money, which theoretically after the rehab phase is a lot more than what you purchased it at in the buy phase. And you say, I think it's worth this much money. I'd like to apply for a loan for, let's say, 75% of its value. Please underwrite it and grant me the loan. And the banks will do that. And the lenders will do that because they are in the business of lending money. So they, and real estate is a great area to lend in because it's collateralized. So they'll lend it to you. And if your numbers are really well, then the proceeds you're going to get from that refinance are going to be greater than your purchase price plus your rehab cost. And so therefore you're keeping this property with none of your own money down. And you can then take the money that you originally put into it and repeat, which is the last phase of the burn method. So kind of to put it to put it into numbers, for example, you buy a property. I'm just very, very like theoretical, right? You buy a property for, let's say, $60,000. Okay, you go and you put in $15,000 of work into it. You're now $75,000 into the property. You put 
a market rate tenant in there, market rate rents. You go to a lender, they tell you, okay, your property is worth $100,000. I'll give you 75% as a mortgage. They give you $75,000, you keep the property. You just made back your $75,000 that you can then put into a future deal. And you kept the property that's cash flowing you rent each month. And so that's kind of the method that I used in the beginning and that I continue to use today. And that's the method that in my years in the corporate world, I saw even the big players, like some of the biggest real estate, private equity and real estate investment trust using. It works, but it could also go, it could also go wrong. I mean, if it's a down market and your property doesn't appraise, then you could, you could be stuck with, with having some money in the game. So it's definitely something that you really got to be careful for when you're assessing properties in the beginning. But if you really think you have a good deal, it's definitely a method that I would encourage any investor to take. And that's, that's really interesting. I think that there is a lot more that goes into this behind the scenes than what the typical renter or, or purchaser will notice. And I think that there is also a market for flipping in most cities, but obviously knowing what you're doing is important. Obviously, you've had some really big wins. Have there ever been instances where maybe it's not necessarily a loss, but it just it didn't appraise for what you were looking for. You didn't exactly get what you were hoping to get out of it. It, it was kind of maybe a mediocre deal. Yeah, it happens all the time. You have to really be prepared to have, you have to have that money ready to go. If your property doesn't appraise, you need to have the 20, let's say the bank's lending you 75%. You need to have that 25% ready to go. Most of the time you already put it in the deal. So you're really not bringing any money to the table. You're cashing out. But if you raise private money to purchase a property in the beginning, and then you need to pay back that construction loan and that private money loan when you obtain a, a loan from a bank, then you need to either be really sure of your numbers or you need to have some money in the bank in case, in case your property doesn't appraise. It has definitely happened. It happens all the time where your numbers are a little bit off. And it's happened in the opposite direction as well, where you were just completely blown out of the water by the numbers and you even took some money out like on top of keeping the property where you got a check from the bank and more than what you put in came back to you and you kept the property so you basically got paid to do the project <laughs> and that's the best case scenario of course okay so that's the scenario where you've already got some collateral how did you get your first loan first loan was actually so it was a $70,000 property. The down payment was, I think I had put like pretty much everything I had made from my commissions, which was about like 40 or somewhere closer to 50%. So the loan wasn't that large. So when the loan wasn't that large and they had a collateral that they knew the value was, was more than the loan amount they were giving, they felt really comfortable. The thing is, is I wasn't able to obtain a residential loan because residential loan, which is like usually goes under like Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac guidelines, those that have a little bit more regulations because they have to abide by the government rules. And so like, I didn't have a job at the time, like a W-2 job. And I didn't have like, like history of, of tax, of tax, um, years of taxes. And so it wasn't, it wasn't going to be doable at all. So I had to go down the commercial route the commercial route, they're usually a little bit more lenient. They charge higher interest rates and usually it's portfolio lenders. So it's institutions that maybe have a certain pool for bigger risk appetite and they make such loans at a higher rate and they put it in certain parts of their portfolio. So I spoke with the local commercial lender who was also a portfolio lender and they were able to approve it at like a 50% loan to purchase price. So you've grown a lot. Have you decided that there are people that you can trust in the industry and some mentors that you've got, and, and maybe it took 
some time. I know it's a really competitive industry. So did you also have a few times that you realized you couldn't trust some of the people that you were working with and maybe had to, to reassess your relationships? <laughs> oh, yeah, a lot. And it's mostly the latter. I, like I said, I really think that like once you find someone you're compatible working with and someone that you like working with and you trust, it's worth a lot. You know, like just that relationship, it's worth a lot. And I'm not talking in terms of like financial, like it's just worth a lot in terms of peace of mind, in terms of just getting things done the right way. Honestly, up until about, I would say maybe eight months ago, I never had anyone that I could rely on. It was a lot of like trying to figure it out as things came up. Now I have someone on my team who honestly has become my friend <laughs> and he's, he's a great guy and I rely on him a lot and trust him a lot with pretty much everything. At this point, he just, he has autonomy to do whatever he needs to do. Um, he doesn't, unless it's something major, he doesn't even need to let me know. To get to that level, it took a lot. It took a lot of working with people that you can't trust and working with people that you can trust just to kind of understand the difference. And yeah, there are definitely times where you get you get like kind of ripped off or especially when you're starting out and people realize you don't really know what you're doing. You are times when you get ripped off and times when like people will take advantage of you. It is a very competitive industry, as you said, like a lot of industries. And honestly, in terms of mentorship, I'll be honest with you. My favorite, my best mentor in the whole thing is, is my father. Now he's, he's has nothing to do with real estate. To be honest with you, he's really just learned real estate from like conversations with me. Uh, he's a dentist by trade and never really made any real estate investment other than his personal office and his house. And he's just kind of been on board through this whole time. Even when I made my first purchase and he's like, stop, don't do that. You're going to get distracted from your studies to now encouraging me to think the sky's the limit. And he's just like a wise person that can kind of learn technical thing, learn the important stuff quick and know how to give you advice so it's usually a matter of like something's up like whether good or bad come to him explain the situation pretty quickly he'll ask you questions if he doesn't understand something and then he'll just give you like solid wisdom <laughs> and that's that's been a huge asset a huge asset to have that's allowed me to kind of like have a good sense of confidence and just like a good like person to fall back on for just advice and coaching I think sometimes it's funny, you know, having somebody external to the industry can almost be invaluable just because of the the rational advice that they can give. And obviously, they're not going to be an expert in the subject matter, but they can kind of sit back and give you an, an unbiased opinion. And, and that that's invaluable. It really is. Yeah. So, you know, as you've grown your portfolio and you're building this, where did you decide or how did you decide rather where to invest, right? So I'm sure property location is very important. Are you looking at statistics? Are you looking at growth patterns? How are you deciding where in the city to buy properties? Have you heard of the three most important factors in real estate? I have not. Location, location, location. <laughs> <laughs> so to be honest with you, when I first started, it was more so of what I could afford. I mean, I really didn't, you don't really see much in, in the Northeast, less than six figures for a property, right? So it was really a matter of that. In essence, I, I can say I got kind of lucky with those markets that they appreciated in a way that I didn't really understand. And because of that, I mean, I'm definitely appreciative, but also I didn't realize why they were appreciating so much in value. And so I was like, okay, I should probably sell. And when I realized that I didn't really have an explanation, I said, okay, time, time to sell. And that's what I did. And then really my push to invest in, in markets was there's this part of Boston where 
even a little, a little before I was in college. I mean, I grew up in Massachusetts, so I, I, I kind of knew a little bit of Boston. And so this area, people in the, would usually say that you don't really want to go there type type area. And then a friend of mine was like, oh, I'm moving to that neighborhood. And I was like, really? And so I did a lot of research. I looked at like what's going on in terms of development, like massive commercial development projects there. Boston as a whole, I know is a very strong and diversified economy. I mean, you have universities, you have hospitals, you have businesses, you really have everything. It's a very unique market. And those are all demand drivers for real estate. And so I didn't need to be convinced on Boston itself, just more so these areas. And I saw the growth pattern of Boston. And I saw that it was kind of, in my opinion, leaning towards the, the southern part with like the seaport area growing and that kind of shifting to be like the new hub in terms of places to go, offices relocating, people moving to live. And I looked at what's the easiest way to get there. And you look at like different commute access points, like in terms of train lines, both subway and commuter rail trains, bus routes. And this market I realized was a now becoming a market where friends of mine are moving to. It's very well positioned in the city in terms of geographic access and transportation. And the numbers in terms of rent to purchase price of properties were just making perfect sense. And so I, I jumped in and I, I've been heavily investing in that market ever since. So some factors to look for, I mean, I, is, is really what kind of, let's say macroeconomic is kind of demand drivers for your market, like population growth, job growth, diversification of, of employment. Those are really factors for, for residential demand. And then in terms of like actual location, it's, it's more so like, okay, is it close to transit? Is it close to the jobs? Is it close to un- university, et cetera? So those are all factors to look for. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Competitive industry, you've gotten into it. Clearly, you've done pretty well. And I would say that you're on your road to some serious success. So good on you. Congrats. However, it wasn't all roses, right? You had some, some bumps in the road. You probably had some times where you were second guessing yourself. So let's say I want to get into this industry and I'm in my 20s, maybe 30s, and this could be a, a side hustle or honestly, this could become a full-time career. Where do I start? What do I start thinking about? And, and you know, what, what do I have to be conscious of as I get into this, this space? So first and foremost, Real estate is huge, right? I mean, there is multiple different areas of becoming involved in the real estate sector. If the way you're asking the question seems to be as if you wanted to get involved as an investor and as a property owner. And my next question to you at that point would be, what kind of properties do you want to own? Do you want to own residential properties? Do you want to own retail centers? Do you want to own office buildings? What kind of properties do you want to own? And from there, what type of that type of property do you want to own? So if you tell me residential, do you want to own condos? Do you want to own two to four unit buildings? Do you want to jump straight into 20 unit buildings in, in one in one roof? So that's kind of the first thing is like figure out how you want to get involved in real estate, whether it's an investor, agent, uh, mortgage lender, whatever it may be. Second, if it's as an investor, what type of property do you want to get involved with? And then from there, you decide, again, what subtype of property do you want to get involved with? I think it's really important for people. You mentioned something earlier on that it's not just like it's the furthest thing from lavish lifestyle as you could possibly think. I mean, the reality of it. Yeah, it sounds nice when you have all this like when you have cash flow coming in and whatnot. But those stories of, of getting those phone calls late at night and dealing with 
maintenance and like I, I mean i'll save you some graphic details but those are all realities as you grow i mean they don't cut these stories don't come out of nowhere so it's really the best advice i would say other than choose what how you want to get involved is do you really want that lifestyle and really you might not know unless you actually try it because you could talk to multiple landlords you could have a survivorship bias where you want to only hear what the good the ones that are still in the industry and the ones that are doing well are saying and you might still jump into it and that's probably how you'll learn but to be honest i would say if anyone's interested in getting involved, it is an amazing industry to be involved in. It has so many opportunities for tax advantages, wealth building, generational wealth building. Like I'm, I mean, I'm all for it. Like I could vouch for it all day, but I would also say you really got to know what you're getting yourself into. Like, is this something, it's not something for everyone. I think in life, honestly, like everyone chooses their headaches. Every business is a headache. You just choose which headaches you want. <laughs> if, if this is a headache that you want to be involved in, then by all means, I mean, there's, there's multiple different areas that could cause for stress issues where a side hustle can, you can quickly realize that a side hustle is taking more time than your full-time job. Um, I mean, real estate, you're dealing with tenants, you're dealing with leasing, you're dealing with banks, lawyers, brokers, you're dealing with contractors, maintenance, like there's just, the list is endless and each area has its own pros and cons. So I really think that someone, people should definitely look for ways to get involved in real estate. I just think when you do decide to get involved in it, you should really make a rational decision how you want to get involved in it and make sure it is something that you know, like the actual realities of and not just focus on, oh, it's passive income, money just comes in each month. Because in reality, it could be, but most of the time, especially when you're starting out, it's really not. Yeah. I mean, there's a huge distinction between passive and active income. And if you're treating this like a full-time gig or even really just a side hustle where you're responsible for the actual physical labor that goes into this, and, and maybe if you're not directly responsible, but you're responsible for hiring the person that is, and you have a lot of, of baggage that you need to carry around. It's not going to be what we think of when we see these real estate moguls it takes time to get there. Now, there are opportunities for passive investments, right? So we think about people that, that invest in real estate companies and are offering up capital for a rate of return or an expected rate of return. Has that something that's ever crossed your mind to, to get into yourself or to consider taking outside of investments? As an investor or as a manager? Let's go with as a manager. As a manager? Yeah. It is, it is an area that I'm definitely exploring and naturally it's an area that I'm gonna, like eventually I'll get to a ceiling and that will be the next breakthrough is, is being a manager of other people's investments in real estate and in specific property types, which I have experience, I've built, I'm currently building an experience with. It is an area definitely where I'm considering and in that sense, the biggest thing there is the business kind of changes. I mean, I worked for a private equity company. I saw it firsthand that it becomes more of an asset management business as opposed to a property management business. The real estate becomes mostly numbers on a spreadsheet. How can you generate the most returns? To be honest, that's not why I fell in love with the business. That's not why I, 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 I'm working on it the way I am. It's like, I, I like the tangible part of it. Like I like to be on all my job sites. I like to meet with all my tenants before they move in. Like any tenant I have, I would be more than happy to go sit and have a cup of coffee with. That's kind of like the approach to real estate that I have. And so long as I can maintain that, at least I think so now, so long as I can maintain that and have investors on board, then I would be willing to do so. But in that case, you really need to choose your investors wisely because choosing your investors, that's, that's a whole nother conversation. But like you could have some investors that could 
make your life day and night stress. And you can have some investors that are like, I trust you. Just let me know how we do this year type thing. And those are the ones that I would target. And those are ones that honestly, you need to gain their trust and it's not always easy. So it might take a little bit more of a track record to be able to do so. Yeah, yeah, sure. And I, I think it's like you talked about, you know, as you get into the space of real estate, finding your niche within there could be really important as, as you get going. How about maintaining your network? You know, you, you come into the space young. I'm sure some people didn't take you seriously. So how did you build and maintain your network in the field? And was it just a, a practice of trial and tribulation and people learning to take you more seriously? Or is it finding the right people and, and working with them? You know, I think it's I think it's kind of a mix of the two. I think you, as you grow, people will naturally take you more seriously. And also people will start to want to be on your side. When people see that things are kind of working out for you, they're like, okay, like, I do this, I can bring value to him in this way. Let's see if he's willing to like work together. And I'm more than willing. I mean, I think business is all like growth, growth in business in general is all about partnerships and being able to like kind of let people with certain skills focus on those skills and combine different people's skills in, in order to grow a business. And so over time, I think people will start to want to work with you and they'll start to trust you more. But yeah, like in the beginning, people would, I mean, no one ever, like I got to a point where I felt like disrespected, I would say. But I mean, there's definitely times when you're competing with like some of the big people and you always hear like, oh, the best deals come off market, like before they go online and everyone can hear about them. If you're just starting out, chances are you're not going to find those. You're not going to get, you're not going to hear of those. It's not your field. There's no way. If you're, if you're like in the market, continuously buying and selling brokers know you lenders know you attorneys know you you're going to start hearing about these kinds of transactions and i think that's really where once you get to that point it becomes really important to maintain and continue building your network because that's how your opportunities will keep coming and in terms of maintaining your network no one is unimportant you never know where an opportunity is going to come from and i've been proven that that's been proven true for me many times i mean someone that was basically replacing an outlet for me at one point, told me, hey, my uncle is thinking of selling their property. Boom, just like that, you have an off-market opportunity that you can grab before the public knows about it type thing. So that's kind of a, a weird example, but it's it tells you the importance of there's no one that's unimportant and maintaining a network, no matter what you're doing, is very, very important. And it's something that you should do no matter what business you're in. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I, I like the idea that there's no one unimportant because there are so many different pieces to the puzzle and, and everyone plays a, a pivotal part, right? And I think a lot of people think that they can do this on their own, but you know, my fiance's mom, she's a real estate agent in, in New Jersey, and she's been in the game for a while. And she said, it's amazing how time and time again, the same people start popping up and you, you do have to maintain your relationships with your lawyers and your lenders. And, and for her being on the selling side, you know, having somebody come and stage the apartment, you know, working with the right inspectors, what lending companies can you recommend to your clients? So there's, there's a lot that you have to be mindful of. And as you present yourself, you are also presenting your brand and your representation, your business. And, and I think that that's something we hear a lot in the corporate world, but it doesn't necessarily live, live, live on our shoulders. When we're representing ourselves. you know, there is a lot riding on it. So yeah, I, I like the, that idea. Two points to that. One, when you're in the space, people are going to come to you with questions that you may even think like, okay, like I don't, if someone's a, let's say, let's use a medical term. If someone's a cardiologist, let's say, for example, you're not, you're going to go to them. Like if my friend is a cardiologist, I'll go to them and I'll say, Hey, my foot hurts. 
just because I know that they're in medicine. To me, I'm not familiar with medicine. So I'm just thinking, oh, they're a doctor, right? But for them, it's like, I can't help you with that, right? That's not my specialty. Same thing for other industries, right? If someone comes to you and says, hey, like, I'm thinking of like putting, I don't know, like these shelves in my kitchen. I, I'm like, okay, like I, that's not, yes, I'm in real estate, but this is not something that I really know or do on a regular basis. But because of my network, I can refer you to someone and then you look good and that person is helped. And the person that you refer them to is also making some work. So it's like a win-win-win type thing. And that's also like another point of, that you said regarding your fiance's mom about just having everyone in your network. The second thing is, is once you find like the real estate business, the real estate, the global real estate market is trillions of dollars. But once you find your niche and whether that's ge- that's geographic and property type, you realize how intertwined and connected p- players are in the field. <laughs> and so that that like in and of itself should be enough of a reason for you to realize why it's important to maintain a network and maintain a good image. Because if you're in that niche and you have a tarnished image, that could hurt you a lot. You might get to a point where you need to find a new niche, <laughs> you know? So both of those points that you mentioned were, were really important. And I think that, that those are great, great advice as well. Yeah, that's super insightful. That's awesome. You talked about the 1031 exchange. So can we, we go back to that? That's, that's pretty interesting to me. Yeah, that's something that's usually also part of our political debates. <laughs> and it's basically, the way it's easiest to explain it is it's a tax code that allows for the defer deferment of capital gains tax on the sale of a property if you reinvest the money into another property within six months. So if I sell a property and I have, let's say, a big capital gain and I reinvest within six months into a new property, then I can defer all that capital gain. And that's a method that allows real estate investors to continue growing their portfolios without having annual tax liabilities whenever they sell a property. Now, that's good because it incentivizes investment and improvement of real estate in the country, right? So you, you'll have an investor will be incentivized to sell a property that they have owned for this many years that they may be maintained in good condition. They sell it, they go on, they buy a bigger property that again, they will add value to improve the appearance of so on and so forth, repeat amongst the masses. And you have neighborhoods that look nice and you have property all over the country that looks good. So it's, it's good in that sense. And that's, that's a method that's used by pretty much every real estate investor. If it benefits you, why not take advantage of it? So I'm assuming you had to hire a pretty solid accountant then to kind of walk you through some of these things, or you try to navigate most of the space. No, yourself? my accountant, my my accountant is is really savvy. Uh, he knows real estate, real estate tax really well. And over the years of just kind of like being interested, I, also from my college curriculum, I learned a lot of it. I took a tax class in college that taught me a lot. Actually, putting it to work was even better in terms of like grasping the information. And then just like, kind of like having to learn certain things, you kind of like come up, you're like, okay, I want to sell this property. The problem is I'm going to have a huge tax liability. So I can't really make another investment. So you just start researching and you start talking to people and just being in the industry, you start hearing of these things. But I would definitely attribute most of the knowledge and familiarity with these things to my tax accountant. Yep. That's uh, my dad's a tax accountant. So putting in a a plug (laughs) for the accountants all over the country. (laughs) Okay. So talked a lot about both ends of the spectrum, right? So as you got started and as you got got to where you are now, let's talk about the metrics of real estate that are important 
in the early stages of growing a portfolio versus what metrics do you think about today? Yeah. So I would say I'm still in the early stages of a portfolio. I mean, that's a very relative point, but I would consider myself to be very early in the stages of portfolio growth. And so I'm still focusing on the same metrics that I focused on when I first realized what I was doing. And to be honest, I would say it's cash flow. I think when you're growing a portfolio, your biggest factor that you want to focus on is maximizing your cash flow. If you're if you're going to focus on appreciation of the property's value, you could wait years and that's not guaranteed, right? Whereas cash flow, it could either come naturally by buying a good asset and renting it out and just collecting market cash flow, or you could force like increased cash flow. And what I mean by that is you can purchase a property that's in rough condition, add granite countertops, add this, add that and upcharge the rent. And they're just by that, you're making more cash flow. And I think that the cash on cash metric, which is basically how much net cash flow you make per year divided by the investment you made into the property that on a percentage basis, I think that's the number that when you're growing a portfolio should be one of your primary areas of focus is how to maximize that number and look for markets that will maximize that number. And that sometimes may come at the cost of appreciation. I mean, you're not going to look at crazy cash flow in markets like Manhattan and markets like downtown Boston and, and markets similar to that. But you'll, you'll find those in more secondary or tertiary markets that may or may not appreciate as much. So it's, it's kind of like always a balance between cash flow and appreciation. If you can find a market that gives you both, then it's golden, in my opinion. But those are not really easy to come by. <laughs> Yeah. And I, I mean, back to what you say about Boston being such a, a hot real estate market. I mean, I talked a lot about it in my first episode of this podcast, actually what my rent was when I was living there. And it's, it's a very expensive place to live. But my, my dad actually had done some construction in the city in, in the summer when he was in college in the 80s. And he talked about how the city was not like it is today. And it took time to get there. But with real estate investors like yourself, though the prices have increased, the, uh, the, the quality of life has as well. So, and I think that we see that happening in a lot of other markets. You know, I live in Charlotte and it's, it's booming here, but 10 years ago, that wasn't the case. Yeah. And I mean, I'm, I mean, I'm a big advocate. Obviously I have a bias, but I'm a big advocate for real estate development. I mean, I think real estate development attracts tourism. It attracts investment. It creates jobs. It's, it create, increases quality of life. Like you said, it's, it's all in all it's all in all very advantageous to cities and local economies. I mean, honestly, examples I can think of is Dubai, Singapore. I mean, these countries have, these places have amazing culture, but in, like you look at them and they're just amazing, phenomenal real estate master plans. And the Burj Khalifa, it's a massive real estate development. The Marina Bay Sands in Singapore, they attract tourists from all over the world each year, generating, creating jobs, generating like local in, uh, income for the local economy. And those are all big scale real estate development. So I think when people are making investments into properties, improving neighborhoods, improving, like you said, quality of life, it's, it's good for it's good for everyone. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. It, it drives a lot of industry. It increases, you know, public safety. It, it, you know, also as cities grow and develop, you typically are going to have better roads and better better public transportation. So it really is advantageous to everyone. And there's there's nothing wrong with uh, as I talked about before. The banks are making money off of us when we purchase homes. So why can't individual investors make money when they're the ones doing the manual labor and and renovating the homes? And so that's where I kind of stand on that. But okay, so. We We've talked a lot about a, a variety of things. Obviously, being in this space, you tend to be a little leveraged in terms of most of your money being in property. Does it allow you the opportunity 
to still invest in yourself in other areas, you know, have retirement accounts and, and be in the stock market? Or are you pretty wholly centered in real estate for a majority of your, your funding? Definitely the latter. I would say probably 95% of my, of my assets are real estate, if not more. And really my, my thought process there, and I, I learned this from someone who, who owns a, a massive business and he's grown it very successfully. And I've always asked him if he invests in the stock market, even when I was like kind of growing up with him, I asked him if he invests in the stock market. And his response was always, why give money to someone else when I know exactly what to do with it type thing. And that always resonated with me. And I always thought like, okay, like real estate is a very powerful asset class. I know what I'm doing in it. I would like to think at least I I have an interest in continuing to grow it. So I'm going to reinvest in it as if I'm trying to grow a company and I'm going to focus right now, at least early on until I get to an area where I'm very comfortable with it, all my eggs in one basket. And I'm doing that definitely intentionally. I do have some small retirement accounts from like my 401ks, from my from my corporate years in stock market and funds and whatnot, but I'm even converting those into, into a self-directed IRA and I'm going to use those to invest in other real estate deals. So I'm all in for real estate right now. And to be honest, I have a lot of friends that are that are very savvy in the stock market, very savvy in cryptocurrency and things that I don't understand. I don't think I'll ever be able to understand, nor quite frankly, am I interested enough to spend the time to understand them. And my, my idea there is, okay, let me focus on real estate. I'll get it to a point where I'm very comfortable with it. And then when I have enough income coming in where I need to, where I feel like I need to start diversifying from it, I'll trust my friends who have been doing so-and-so asset class for the last 10 years to invest my money in that space, right? And vice versa. That's kind of the mentality I have right now. And also combine it with the fact that I'm trying to grow this as a company in order to do so, you kind of really need to keep reinvesting into it type thing. Yeah, that makes sense. And you know, one of the rules that I always say is don't invest in anything you don't understand. So if, if you have your niche and your areas of understanding, that's where you really should be putting your money because otherwise you are, you're relying on somebody else and, and you don't understand what they're doing with your money that can be a little scary. Okay. So uh, let's let's transition here. You're going to give me top three pieces of advice that you would have given yourself as you started getting into the space. Top three pieces of advice that I would have given myself getting into the space. Okay. So I think getting into real estate, top three pieces of advice, I would say number one is find a way to get into the industry with little financial risk. And what I mean by that is if you can get into the industry by being a broker, being a mortgage lender, being a general contractor, something where you can earn income from it without having to put in any kind of burden on yourself or burden on yourself financially, do it that way. Because you're basically learning it for for payment as opposed to the other way around. And you're going to make mistakes. You're a hundred percent going to make mistakes. And it's much easier to learn from other people's mistakes when you're a service provider in the industry or when you don't have much skin in the game financially than it is when a lot of your assets are on the line. So I would say that's probably one of the top things I would recommend is find a way to get into the space without actually putting a burden on yourself financially or in terms of resources. The second thing is kind of what we talked about a little bit earlier is if you're going to enter the field, make sure you know exactly what you're getting yourself into. And how you're going to do that is talking to people, shadowing people, doing what I said in, in, in uh, tip number one is, is getting involved in it without actually purchasing something, really learning exactly what it's like to be in those shoes. So you know exactly what to expect because real estate is a very illiquid asset. So if you get yourself in, in a property and you realize that you hate this life after six months, 
you're locked into a lease with the tenant for 12 months, let's say, or you you put the property on the market and it's just sitting there for a few months, it's it's not going to be a fun situation. So you really want to make sure you're making the right decision and you're not stretching yourself too thin when doing so. And then on top of that, I would say another tip is just make sure that when you get into the field, what's your goal? Is your goal to, and this is something that I didn't do, uh, to be honest. And it's something that honestly right now has caught me by surprise and I'm trying to figure it out. What's your goal? Is your goal to just have this be passive income where you're, it's going to allow you to have more flexibility, not less? Or is this something that you're going to use as a side hustle to eventually be, to eventually replace whatever it is you do on a full-time basis. So that's what I would say. And if I could add tip four, and this could apply to whatever you do, not just real estate, it's know and carefully select partners, strategic partners. You're not going to know it all. You're not going to be a master of everything. Sometimes you might have to be in the beginning uh, because you're just naturally too small to have other people involved, but know what you're good at, what your limitations are, and try to find people that complement your skills and fulfill gaps that you may not be good at. And that in forms of strategic partnerships will allow each side to really focus on what they're good at, what they like to do. And that could theoretically lead to infinite growth. In my opinion, I think at that point, the sky's the limit and it becomes a very natural, healthy flowing business. Yeah, that, that's, that's great. So young Mark can listen to old Mark and, and succeed even more here in the future. <laughs> yeah, that's another thing to know. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm really a few years into this. So I'm sure if someone listens to this, that might be in, in the has been in the business for 40 years might be like, Oh, you're so naive type thing. But who knows? we'll see. I, I'll definitely re listen to this in, in a few years. <laughs> Yeah, it's actually, I think it's interesting as we all grow and develop our perspective changes. So if anyone is in the space that's a bit older, if you want to message me after, I can connect you with Mark and we can set up a little mentorship. That would be awesome. All right. Mentor. So Mark, we're going to play a little game now. And I'm going to throw a, either a company name at you or a topic. And you're just going to give me the first thing that comes to your mind in terms of bullish or bearish. If you're bullish on it, give me your reason why. If you're bearish... You know, again, give me a reason why. Try not to skip too many. We're just having fun. Okay. All right. So uh, college education right out of high school. Bearish. And I would say why? Because I think there's there's a lot of, first of all, the cost, needless to say. Second of all, I think there's a lot of factors in our education system that is to fulfill a curriculum <laughs> as opposed to teaching people what they actually want to know. I think there is definitely merit to that if you don't know what you want to do and you're entering college and really want to discover and explore different options before deciding on what you want to dedicate your career to. But if I if I were to think of that, I would say, maybe work somewhere, maybe explore these different options through online courses or through talking to people in the field before committing a huge financial burden on, on a college curriculum. And I think once you become very technical, you really like a lot of the skills you use are not things you're taught in college. Now, I am bullish also because I personally loved my college experience. I mean, I think the, the biggest gains I had in college was aside from academia was the network I built, the mindset that college put me in, the sense of independence I got by living like living on my own and kind of like learning how to be a functional adult. And then also the academia. I mean, I was in a unique situation where I was learning real estate classes and then implementing them at the same time after class in like actual property ownership and property brokerage, et cetera. So that was unique where I benefit out of that. But into overall, I would probably say bearish if the system doesn't change. 
Yeah, I think there's a lot of talk about how the education system will change. And I think it'll be interesting to watch here over the next couple of decades. But, you know, I, I'm a big proponent of education, but I don't know that it necessarily has to be as formal, uh, given some career aspirations that 17, 18 years old don't necessarily line up with what you want to do long term. Right. I want it to be. Yeah, exactly. And instead, you'd be cleaning my teeth right now. So <laughs> <laughs> Bitcoin. I know that you talked a little bit about how you don't necessarily understand it. Are you bullish or bearish? Or let's just go uh, the crypto market overall. To be honest, I don't understand much, so I can't comment. But if I had to say something, I think it's a disruptor. And a lot of people, including myself, aren't going to understand it. And those that understand it are in a really good position. And I have friends that do, and I will trust them in the near future with, with my capital. And like all disruptors, it gets a lot of scrutiny. And I think that's where Bitcoin is right now. Um, but in terms of voting, whether or not I'm bullish or bearish on it, I don't really, I can't really comment just because I'm not very familiar with the, with the field. Yep. Fair enough. Fair enough. All right. Let's go with Tesla. You know, you've, you've heard a lot about Tesla in the news. You, you've seen a lot happening. Obviously they are also a market disruptor. Are you bullish or bearish on them? Let's say five years from today. Bearish. I think they have, I think they've exhausted first mover advantage. I think that they, there's now if we're talking just cars, because otherwise I'm not very familiar with how much, where else Tesla plays in terms of like their batteries and in, in terms of cars, I think that they're, I'm a car person and I don't love Teslas. <laughs> there are car manufacturers that aren't going anywhere and that are going to be doing the same thing that Tesla is doing, except better, in my opinion, because they'll incorporate the battery, they'll incorporate that technology, and they'll have that design that makes people love a BMW and makes people love a Ferrari. And I think that those are, those are going to stick around. Yep. Yeah. I think that it's a very immature market and there's a lot to come. All right. So let's go with New York City real estate, given the current COVID environment. One of the toughest questions in the last year now. Um, New York City is broad, so I'll, I'll challenge you by saying, "What? What are you talking? New York City, all five boroughs, or just Manhattan?" Yeah, let's go with Manhattan and let's go with residential real estate. Bearish. The reason why is because I think Manhattan from the start was already an area for old money. Most of the money was made in Manhattan. Property values don't increase that much there unless it's really new product or significant renovation product. And to be honest, I think this this work from home model, I mean, I don't think it's it's a permanent shift, but I think that the five days a week in the office is probably going to slowly go away. And therefore, people will start to realize that, okay, I could live somewhere 30 minute commute because I'm going into the office two to three days a week. And therefore I'll move to Brooklyn or I'll move to the Bronx, for example, and get more for my dollar, get a bigger space, maybe some outdoor space because I'm working from home. And also I'm not going into the office as much. So I'm still on the subway. I'm still easy access. I also have the best of both worlds where I'm, I'm not living in a shoebox in Manhattan. And I think that that trend kind of already started pre-COVID been coined the Brooklyn effect. I don't know if it's actually a thing, <laughs> but I think that that's something that's definitely here to stay and a big push for cities all across the country like that. And I don't think it's just New York. I think all major CBD markets will, will feel a little bit of a hit. Yeah, I definitely agree. Okay. Last one post COVID same question as New York, but let's focus on Boston now. So do you think Boston will be as impacted as New York. Are you bullish or bearish on residential real estate in Boston? Again, it depends where, but overall Boston, 
bullish just because of the diversification of the economy. What I mean by that is you have different demand generators that are still going to be in person. And that's universities, hospitals, life science and labs, which are being built all over the city and heavily invested in throughout the city. And I think those are all in person. And some of them may even still be five days a week in person, if not more. So I think Boston is unique in that sense. So I'm, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty bullish. I think Boston had, had a big student market. It all went away. It caused a drop in rents because the students just weren't there. But college kids that are paying these tuitions and college applications have just been going up. Those people are going to come to campus and they're going to want a place. They're going to want to live on campus. I know from my siblings who were in college, from, from their friends who were in college, they just, they want to be there. So I think that that plus hospitals, plus life sciences plus the office market that already exists, I think that that's going to be, I'm bullish on that. And on top of it, I'll give you just one specific example. Amazon is who basically said that our employees like has one of the more flexible work from home policies from, from companies that have announced it is building over a million square feet of office space in Seaport. So they, they might, they might be thinking something else. I mean, are, are their employees going to be coming into the office? I mean, they're building over a million square feet of office space. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. And, you know, as somebody who used to live off of Com Ave at one point, I am fully aware of all the college students in, in Boston. And, and actually, for those that don't know, within, I can't remember the exact square mileage of Boston, but there's 250,000 plus college students at any given time. So it is a huge student market. Right, right. And it's a big part of the, the regular population of Boston and who takes up all these apartments. Yep. All right, Mark. Well, thanks a lot. I really do appreciate it. I know the listeners do as well. Any closing thoughts? Any final words? You know, I'm always I, I I'm always happy to talk about this. How how much time we spent together talking right now? And I think I think it's awesome. It flew by. <laughs> I hope it I hope it was fun for you too. But it's really fun yeah, about absolutely. this. This is my passion. This is a my biggest interest. Um, so I'm always happy to talk about it. So if anyone's willing to, if anyone has any questions, if I could be of help to anyone, or if anyone in the other way around feels like they could help me in any way and is willing to kind of like to have a chat, always willing to talk. My phone's always on. It has to be. <laughs> and we can provide my contact information and feel free to reach out. Always happy to chat with people. Always happy to help in any way I can and always happy to make new connections. So thanks Dustin for this opportunity. It was awesome. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and Mark, hope that you'll stick around and, and watch the show grow and, and be one of our supporters as we move along. Oh, for sure. I mean, I'd love to learn about other, other areas of this, of, of finance and other areas of investments and personal finance. And this seems like a show that's going to be able to provide that. Trust me, there are endless topics to talk about. So hopefully you'll find some of interest. All right. Thank you, Mark. Appreciate it. Have a great night. Dustin, thank you, man. This was another great interview, and I'm really glad you joined me here on The Business of Business. I will leave all of Mark's information in the description if you want to reach out to him to learn more. Check back next week for another great interview on Thursday and another educational topic on Tuesday. Together, we'll own that road to financial freedom, and I'm glad you're joining me for it. I want to hear from you. Have a topic you'd like discussed? A suggestion? You can contact me on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, email, and more. Check out the description for my link tree. I look forward to hearing from you. The show is written and edited by me, produced and edited by Daniel Rue. A lot of work goes into these episodes, and we really hope you enjoy them.